So my, uh, one of my best friends is named Andrew, Andrew Sprock. Some of you have met him. He just lives down in, in Marion. And uh, when we were in seminary, there was a, a church about 10 or 15 minutes away from our seminary who had an open gym night, and uh, we would go and play basketball together. And um, Andrew and I have always gotten along great. From the first day that we met, uh, we were fast friends. Uh, but there was one night on the basketball court where um, I don't remember what it was, whether I called a foul on him or whether I called a travel on him or if he stepped out of bounds. I don't know what it was, but obviously he was wrong. And I, I, I called whatever violation it was, and uh, he disagreed. And uh, we, we kind of went toe-to-toe there for a couple of minutes on the basketball court, which, you know, happens, and that's fine. But the problem was we had a 15-minute had a drive home together after that. And it was very quiet, and it was very tense. And we drove up back to our seminary campus, and I turned off the car, and we sat there, and then we just started to laugh. Throughout Paul's letter to the Philippians, it's clear that they're a relatively healthy community. In many of Paul's letters, he writes to correct churches that he's writing to. There's some sort of um, behavior that they are, that they're engaged in, or some sort of doctrinal error that he's writing to correct. But the letter to the Philippians is a little bit different. They seem to be a fairly healthy community, and Paul writes to them to encourage them, uh, to thank them, to continue to invite them to, to join with him in his ministry. But in the letter, Paul does still have some concerns for them. He's heard that there are some divisions that are emerging in their community. And those divisions, as I've, I've read through this letter um, a, a lot, especially the last couple of months, it seems to me that these divisions seem to be around these general, everyday disagreements and arguing and personality conflicts, fights on the basketball floor, and how they are to respond to these everyday divisions that exist between them. How are they going to react to the person uh, that they just don't get along with all that well? How are they going to respond when somebody does something to them that hurts or harms them, or they have some sort of disagreement? And so Paul takes some time in his letter to talk about the attitude and actions that we should have with each other in our day-to-day relationships where all of us can be selfish and inconsiderate and sinful. How are we going to respond to one another when we act in that way toward each other? And last week, at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, Paul, of course, holds out Jesus to us as our example. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Consider other people's interests before your own. Make sure that your attitude toward other people is the same as the attitude of Jesus, who in humility became a servant to all. Knowing how to keep and maintain peace and unity in the church while our selfishness and our sin bump up against one another is an important part of our Christian maturity. Becoming like Jesus in these everyday interactions and relationships with others is an important part of what it means to grow up as a mature follower of Jesus. And so... After Paul holds up Jesus as our example, this is what he says. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, 
starting at verse 12. After giving us this beautiful, reminding us of this beautiful hymn, this song that was sung about the humility of Jesus, this is what he says. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. As you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, and you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Paul tells us something very important here that I think that I often, that maybe all of us sometimes miss. That our salvation is expressed and lived out and worked out in our relationships with one another. When I first read, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, my mind immediately goes to, how is my vertical relationship with God going? Am I having my, my regular prayer times and devotional times? Am I, am I fasting? Am I participating in the other spiritual disciplines that are important for the Christian life? Those are important, but it's not the mirror that Paul holds up to us here. The mirror that Paul holds up to us to ask whether or not we are working out our salvation in the right way, the mirror he holds up to me is my relationship with you. This chapter has been all about the way that we relate to one another, our horizontal relationships, the me and the you, the everyday getting along with one another is where our salvation is lived and worked out. I want to back up for just a minute and talk a little bit about what Paul means by salvation. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. What is salvation? What does it mean in the Christian life to be saved? Well, earlier in the book of Philippians, Paul talks about this hope that he has for when he dies. Paul has the confidence that when he dies, he is going to depart from this life and to be with Christ, which he says is better by far than being here in the body. That's one part of our salvation, that through the, our trust in the work of Jesus, that we have the hope that on the other side of this life, that we are going to live with God forever. Amen? One part of our salvation is the good news that in Christ, our sin is forgiven. That the things that I do, the things that I think, the things that I'm supposed to do that I don't do, that I can find forgiveness from all of the ways that that separates me from God, that I can find healing in my relationship with God through the forgiveness that Jesus brings. The Bible also has some other things to say about salvation, that in addition to being forgiven of my sins, that salvation says that I can also be set free from my sin. 
that not only are they, they washed away, but I am given new life so that I can walk in a way that honors God, walk in a way of holiness. There was a, um, a gentleman that attended our, our last church. He would come on Wednesday nights uh, to our Bible study. His name was Jerry, and he was an interesting character. And um, every Wednesday night, at some point in our Bible study, he would find an opportunity to say this. He would say, Christianity is not about sinners in need of forgiveness. It's about dead men in need of life. I think it's a bit of an overstatement, but that has stuck with me for 15 years now. That our, our salvation is that we were dead and that we've been made alive. Salvation is the gift of new life that begins now and continues for eternity. I've used this quote by my, my friend Dallas Wooler for so long. Salvation is not about getting to heaven after we die. It's about getting into heaven before we die. That right now we can live a heaven-like holy reality, not perfectly, but more and more. More today than yesterday and more tomorrow than today. That we can more and more live into the new life that is offered to us through Jesus. Or as Paul says later here in the book of Philippians, he'll say, live up to what we have already attained. We've been given this forgiveness. We've been given this new life. So now live up to that. Live out that salvation in your life right now. Uh, another example here of this new life that Paul describes, it's in Titus chapter 2. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, who are eager to do what is good. Salvation here is described as a different kind of life, a different quality of life that we live here right now as we wait for the hope that is coming. This salvation, according to Paul in Philippians 2, it's worked out in community together. Our salvation is a personal matter, but it's never private. It's personal between us and God, but it always has to do with the people around us. It's worked out together. It's lived out in relationship. It's expressed in my relationship with other people. We live out our salvation. We work out our salvations in our interactions with one another. The way that I relate to you, the way that I choose to relate to you is essential to my own salvation working itself out. And so... The very next thing that Paul says after talking about working out our salvation is do everything without complaining and arguing. Another translation uses the word grumbling, and I'm just going to use that word because I think it's a great word that sort of sums up complaining and arguing. Do everything without grumbling. 
as we think about what it means to grow in maturity as people who know Jesus and who become like Jesus. That's how we've defined maturity. People who know Jesus and who are becoming like Jesus. One of the characteristics of maturity is to be a person who doesn't grumble. Can you imagine Jesus grumbling? It's kind of funny to think about, right? Jesus would never grumble. And part of maturity, part of becoming like Jesus is learning to grow to be a person that doesn't grumble. This week, I've been thinking about how far I have to go in becoming that kind of a person. When I think about my life the last couple of years, when I think about how I've thought about my circumstances, how I've talked about my circumstances, how I've talked about other people who I feel have harmed or done me wrong or who don't think like I do or act like I think they should, there's a lot in my life that reflects a grumbling spirit. This is really the, fir- the verse that caught me this week in this passage, and so we're going to spend quite a bit of time here. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Do everything without grumbling so that you may be blameless children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the world. Paul could have given a lot of different commands here. Don't lie to each other. Don't cheat to one another so that you may be blameless and pure children of God. Don't commit adultery so that you could be blameless and pure children of God. He could have said a lot of things, but what comes to his mind in this moment as he's given instructions about what it means for the Philippians to work out their salvation together is the command, don't grumble. Don't complain and argue. And if you can stay away from grumbling, you will be blameless and pure. (laughs) Children of God without faults in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars. That is a strange thing to say. If we were to write out, just right now, if I were to ask you to write out your list of like the top five worst sins, if I would have done it before the sermon started anyways, I don't imagine grumbling or complaining or arguing probably would have been on any of our lists. But it seems pretty important here, important here to Paul. As he imagines the Philippian situation, as he imagines the danger to Christian unity and community, as he imagines the danger to their own salvation, he sees that one of the most important things that they need to guard themselves against is that They might become a community of grumblers. And Paul has some very good biblical reasons for holding up, complaining and arguing, grumbling as such a danger to salvation and such a danger to community. Because Paul read the Bible a lot. And there's a particular part of the Bible where it talks a lot about a group of people who grumbled. Who was it? Israelites, where? In the desert. Do you remember that story in the Exodus? It's in Exodus and Numbers in particular. Paul is drawing from this Exodus story here. In the story of Exodus, the people of Israel have experienced God's salvation. They've experienced his saving work. To use our language, they've been saved. They've been saved by God. They've been set free from slavery. They've been given new life. 
They've been baptized through the waters of the Red Sea, and they've been brought into freedom on their way to the promised land. They've been given new life, and now they're called to be a set-apart people who shine like stars in the world. A people who are to live out the reality of this salvation that God has given to them. To be people who live as a saved people, who know what God has done for them. And their life, their community life, is characterized by grumbling. Exodus 15, Exodus 16, Exodus 17, Numbers 11, Numbers 12, Numbers 14. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Such a great word, isn't it? Grumble. It's an onomatopoeia. It's like what we do when we grumble. They grumble against Moses. They grumble against Aaron. They grumble against God. The character of the people of Israel, what marks them as a community after salvation, not in slavery, but after salvation, is grumbling. Because it's so easy to do. Just pay attention to this week to how often you grumble. It is probably a daily experience. Folks, there's sometimes when writing a sermon is really a grind, and this sermon felt that way this week, and so there was much of my week that was dedicated to grumbling while writing a sermon about not grumbling. (laughs) Grumbling happens when there is discontent in us that we then give words to in a way that is primarily about our own fears or selfishness rather than the good of others. Let me say that again. Grumbling happens when there's discontent in us that we choose to give words to that is primarily about our own selfishness or fears rather than the good of others. This is different than raising a concern. This is different than true, actual, godly, constructive criticism, actually coming to a brother or sister in concern and and, and helping them through things, it's different. And sometimes those two things look a lot alike, but you know the difference, right? You know the difference internally, whether you're grumbling or whether you're offering something that is actually helpful and for the building up of that other person. And most of the time, we also know when someone's grumbling to us or at us rather than actually coming with something that they want to build us up with. And it's such an easy thing, and I I think it's so easy, and I think it's so common in our lives that our consciences have actually become quite numb to it. We've forgotten that it's sin. We've forgotten that it's a problem. But Paul is clear here that it's dangerous. It's one of the primary dangers in a community. He goes so far as to say again that if we stay away from grumbling, it's what can help us be blameless and pure without fault in the world. It's a big deal. Our words matter. Our words matter. They are powerful. They create and they make reality. God created the world by speaking. The eternal Son of God is called the Word. And as people made in God's image, our words come with power. They have the power to build up or they have the power to tear down. They have the power to to sow life and encouragement into others or to tear them down. And grumbling is the act of using our words in ways that tear down rather than building up. So why is grumbling so dangerous? Why is grumbling so dangerous? 
First, I'll say this, that it reflects a lack of trust in God. When Israel grumbled in the desert, it was always a response to some fear of whether or not God was going to come through. Fear about food or water or how long are we going to wander in this desert? Grumbling comes from focusing only on the circumstances of our life that we don't like, the things that are happening to us, the decisions that are being made by others that affect us, and focusing on those things rather than focusing on God and the work that he is doing in our life through that trial. Later in Philippians, Paul is going to say that he has learned the secret of being content in all circumstances— And that secret has to do with deep and abiding trust that God is in control of our lives and our circumstances and wants to work his will and his way, Christ-likeness in us through whatever trial or circumstance we're going through. Second, grumbling is dangerous to the community because it's a reflection of our contempt for our neighbor. I've been listening and reading to uh, Dan Allender a lot recently. He's a psychologist who who thinks and speaks so clearly, at least for me, about what it means to live a God-honoring life. And he has introduced this idea to me recently. It's really powerful, this idea of contempt and the way that we are so quick to hold other people in contempt. When we experience hard circumstances in our life, when we experience frustration or pain, when we face some sort of uncertain future, we tend to look around and try to find someone else to blame. And that blame usually goes to a leader, a spouse, another congregation member, a president, a teacher, a coach, someone else. And when we find that person, when we take our fear, our shame, our pain, or our uncertainty, and we put it on that person, they then become an object to us and not a person made in God's image. We become a person where we can place our blame. And this is when we hold people in contempt. And grumbling is the verbal expression of our contempt for someone. Our grumbling is often about people around us, about the way that they are acting and wishing that they were different or would think differently. If our leaders would make different decisions, if I was in their place, I would do things differently. But they are bad and they are outside of, and this is an important idea in the concept of contempt, that they are outside of the boundaries of God's work and redemption. That somehow their actions or their being is somehow outside of the boundaries of how God is at work in the world. Not worthy somehow of God's work and redemption. It's contempt. It's holding other people or their actions as outside the boundaries of God's work in the world. I think we need to be careful about contempt, and I'll say a few more words about that in a minute. Third, it's dangerous because it's poison that spreads. All sin has terrible effects on our own lives, has terrible effects on our communities. But grumbling has a way of spreading. Grumbling invites more grumbling. So I want to talk to um, the leaders, leaders of our church, or if you're leaders of other organizations, I just want to say to you today that your grumbling actually gets magnified among the community. If, If you grumble, it has a magnified sort of effect in the community that you're leading. 
And again, as I reflected this week, I know that I've been in a lot of meetings. I'm sure more than I know and more than I'm willing to admit where I've begun to grumble and as the leader have then watched the room turn into more grumbling. Because it feels so good. It feels so good to have sharers in the grumbling. So as if you're a leader at Broadway or some other organization, be careful of your grumbling. Congregation members, if you're, you're not a leader, remember that most of our grumbling, usually we grumble up. We grumble towards leaders. In Exodus, who did the people grumble against? Poor old Moses. We always grumble up toward our small group leader, toward our teachers, toward our pastors, toward our political leaders, toward our parents, toward our coach. We tend to grumble up. And so pay attention to your words this week. Pay attention to how many of your words are words of grumbling about those around you. So in this passage, Paul imagines the church. He calls the church to be something different, to be not a community of grumblers, but to be mature people who, in everything, abstain from grumbling. Maturity reflects trust in God. These three points are going to be the opposite of the three points that I just made. Maturity reflects trust in God. If grumbling reflects a lack of trust in God, maturity comes from trust in God. The mature person, like Jesus, knows that the circumstances that we are in, the pain that we are facing, that God is in control of it, that he wants to work through it, that he wants to use it to make us more like Jesus. The mature person refuses to hold other people in contempt. A mature person refuses to allow contempt to be the way that they view other people. Maturity is expressed in considering the interests of others more than our own. That in humility that we would consider others better than ourselves. You can't hold somebody in contempt if you consider them better than you. And in maturity, it doesn't only so... It doesn't... It doesn't only not sow poison into the community, but it actually sows words that builds up. And you can probably think of someone in your life who you know is like this, who you want to be around in a time of trial or trouble, because they're a person whose words and presence and action brings a certain kind of grace and truth and beauty and hope and life. Friends, the calling here to be a people who don't grumble is serious. It's serious for the health of our church, and it's serious also for our witness in the world. Paul says, do everything without grumbling so that you will be blameless and pure without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. A community that doesn't grumble is a community that shines in a dark place. This is no more true than in our time right now. We live in a culture that thrives on contempt. People are making billions and billions of dollars from us because of our willingness and eagerness to have that feeling of shared contempt for our enemies. In your social media feeds, in your internet searches, those algorithms are created because they know that you love to feel contempt and that you love to feel contempt with others who feel contempt about the same people that you feel contempt for. 
And so they're designed in such a way to generate those feelings of frustration and that feeling of relief that we get when we read something that confirms our own contempt. We live in a culture that is teaching us to be people of contempt. Listen to your favorite radio personality and ask the question, in what way are they seeking to form me? Is this voice forming me to be a person who holds those I disagree with in contempt? It's even on ESPN. When we're talking about arguments about sports, there is this strange rage that is being promoted, even about something like sports. We are trained to hold people we disagree with in contempt, to allow ourselves to believe that our neighbors that we disagree with aren't just wrong, but they're demonic and outside the boundaries of God's work of redemption in the world. We're being trained to be enraged. So pay attention to your words in the world. Pay attention to the words that you put out on social media. Pay attention to the words that you speak about other people. Because if our words as followers of Jesus are going into the world as words of contempt, we are not going to be lights that shine in a dark place. We are called to do everything without grumbling so that we will shine. So that we will shine. So here's the, here's the good news, friends. Um, our grumble-free Savior died for my grumbling and yours. He died so you and I can be forgiven of it, and he died so that we can be set free from it. He died and has sent his spirit into your life, has sent his spirit into our church, so that we can be set free from grumbling, to be a people who trust God, to be a people who see other people as God sees them, as men and women made in the image of God, not outside of God's love and compassion and desire for redemption. He died and sent his spirit so that we can be forgiven of this thing and so that we can be set free from it. And Paul said that God is at work in you to will and to act according to this good purpose of not being a grumbler. In short, he is at work in your will, in your wanter, to be a person who doesn't want to grumble anymore. And if you will ask him and if you will surrender to him, if you will notice those times in your life when you grumble, notice them, ask forgiveness for them, and walk and repent in a different way, God will change your will so that you do not want to grumble. So that when you find that you are grumbling, that you get a little bit of a sick feeling in your stomach that I've become a grumbler today. And if you ask him, and if you surrender your will to him, he will give you the power to act according to his good purpose. He will give you the power to, over time, become that kind of mature person who enters into places and circumstances where it is so easy to grumble and instead be a person who brings life and goodness and beauty and hope. This grumbling thing, according to Paul, like of all the things that he could have said here after talking about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He talks about not grumbling. I find that fascinating to me because most of us don't even consider it a thing that we need to repent from. And so would you join me now as as I pray for us that we would become more and more a community that does not grumble. 
Father, may your, may your kingdom come and may your will be done in my life and in the life of our church. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our grumbling, even as we forgive those who grumble against us. Lord, we ask for the help that you promise here in this passage, that you, by your power, want to change our will, want to change what we want, so that we don't want to grumble. And that you will also, by your spirit, give us the power to act, to be people who, who like Jesus, bring goodness and, and truth and hope and encouragement and godly correction to the relationships that we share together. So, Lord, may you, may you do this in each one of us. And I ask for it in the name of Jesus and in the power of the spirit that you've given to us. Amen.